Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tactical Yanks podcast, your podcast for soccer in America and around the world. I'm your co-host, Pete Douthit, and I am joined by my fellow co-host, Filippo Silva, and welcome to the Tactical Yanks podcast. Hopefully you enjoy. We'll be talking about U.S. soccer, European soccer, South American soccer, the World Cup, and much more. And we're back for another episode of the Tactical Yanks podcast, episode 21. Tack, how are you doing? I'm happy. I'm happy to be here. It's been a long day. I'm back at coaching. I'm back at coaching. It's very fun, but Florida is very hot and humid, and it can uh-huh. be exhausting here at times. But besides that, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing good, man. I just got back from an audition, so we are recording a little late. Um, but, you know, better late than never. Yeah, and let's talk about, before we start talking about the Americans abroad, there's a lot to talk about there. It was a very fun weekend if you are a USMNT fan and and like European soccer. But why don't we talk about one thing here? Manchester United defeated Liverpool today. The Mm -hmm. finished, the destroyed Manchester United that no one believed in anymore. Even us, even us, even me as a fan. Um didn't believe in them any much more, but Ten Hag made some changes. The starting eleven was a little bit weird when I saw it at first. I wasn't very hopeful, even though they were playing at Old Trafford. But Manchester United defeated Liverpool two one, and now Liverpool has only two points in three games, and Manchester yep. United has three points, so they're even ahead of Liverpool at this point. Were you able to watch the game? I was. I did watch the game. It wasn't just that they beat them. It's that they were so dominant in the way they beat them, too. It wasn't like a smash-and-grab job. They were very good throughout the entire game, the entire team. It was really impressive. And some of that might just be that Liverpool were awful and have been awful this season so far. But still, credit to them. I want to say Ten Hag finally grew some balls. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I think when he came in, he was too respectful of the situation. This is a club in chaos, And he came in, and I guess he was like, okay, Maguire can still be the captain, which means if he's the captain, you have to play him. And he was just trying to hold on to all all these Manchester United, you know, positions and then not, you know, sort of shake things up. But I think after two games, it needed a shake-up. And Ten Hag was like, fuck it. I'm going to do it my way with the players that I believe in that I think can win this game. And it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, also even benching Ronaldo, even though he did play Ronaldo, I'm just saying... Uh, Harry Maguire benched Luke Shaw that's been out of shape was benched then he played Malasia which was actually a signing that Ten Hag requested from Feyenoord and he was a beast the guy was fantastic what they needed amazing how different the team looked Uh, look 
it's still not a team to fight for the Premier League title, but it's a team to stay top six if everything goes Maybe. well. This could and, you have to remember this is a big it's a derby, even though it's not technically a derby, it is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easier to get up for those big games. Before I say Manchester United can go back to top four, it's one game. And I wonder if they're going to get up for the Bournemouths and the Leeds and the, you know, Crystal Palaces of the world. That's, that's yeah. for me, more the proving ground than winning a big fixture like this. Yeah, derbies do also revive teams, right? Because all of a sudden you can get things figured out. It was also interesting to see that he played a midfield with McTominay that's going to be replaced by Casemiro. That's going to be a big upgrade. And Christian Eriksen played there in the midfield along with Bruno Fernandes. So maybe that's his plan. It's to have Casemiro as an anchor man and then have two very technical players in, that can create ahead of him. Somewhat projecting how Real Madrid played with Casemiro too a little bit. Just protect the back line and have two overly technical creators ahead of him and he does the dirty work. We'll see. Manchester United, uh, I just thought it was something we should talk about briefly since it looks like it's a club that probably the european club that doesn't have americans that we talk about the most here in the podcast yeah Um, global brand and they're uh, fun to talk about because they're such a uh you know chaotic club so yeah and unpredictable very unpredictable nowadays (laughs) i still don't think this is a top four team i just don't i think it's they're going to struggle probably top six yeah but i I think it's going to take some time to rebuild this team no, also top four, it's looking very well. Because, look, Liverpool's going to bounce back. Uh, this team is too good. They're going to figure it yeah. out. They're not looking yeah. good, but they're going to figure it out. They're very well managed. My top four right now will probably be Liverpool, Manchester City, Arsenal, and Tottenham. Those are the most reasonable picks to be the top four in the Premier League. Then yeah. Chelsea will have to grind it out, man. Chelsea's not looking good. We're about to talk. So I want to just dive into Chelsea because yeah. not really yeah. Chelsea. We're going to talk about Leeds versus Chelsea, and we both yep. watched that game. You did the live watch along. Leeds three, Chelsea zero. And I can, I was hopeful for this game. I didn't think Leeds would win, but I was hopeful something would happen. Could anyone have imagined a 3 0 win? No, no. I mean, I was just hoping Leeds wouldn't get thrashed, you know? I was hoping Jesse Marsh would play conservative would, you know, maybe try to eke out a draw. And if they lose 2-0 or 1-0 or 2-1, fair enough. It's expected. It's not, you know, I just didn't want them to get thrashed. But Jesse Marsh played that game perfectly, you know, and he also caught Chelsea on a very bad day. Although I don't know if it's Chelsea on a bad day or if it's he took advantage of Chelsea's weaknesses, right? They love this slow, patient possession buildup, you know, very deliberate. And his pressing scheme completely destroyed that. He made it very difficult for them. And then so quick with the Blitzkrieg counterattacks, <laughs> you know, uh, that and, you know, it's not that Chelsea had zero chances, but he limited them to basically shots from distance. They didn't have a lot of clear cut chances. I like how Tuchel also adjusted, tried to adjust in a second, because look, Connor Gallagher, let's talk about him very quickly, because that's something I observed in the game. Very hyped English player that was very good mm-hmm. for Crystal Palace last season. And he's a good player. But did you notice how he's not very technical in tight spaces? Did no. you see how he gets pressed? He surrendered every time. He was the one that passed it back to Mendy under pressure with Brendan on him, if I'm not mistaken. It was Conor Gallagher under pressure. Tuchel noticed that, and he adjusted in the second half by pushing Gallagher up high up the field, and then even Pulisic eventually came in for Gallagher uh, in that position for a little bit as an attacking midfielder. But I like how Jesse adjusted in the second half, right? Yeah. The first game against Southampton, he had a 2-0 lead. Didn't change the way he played. Didn't put in fresh legs. Unfortunately, he conceded a draw. This game, he shifted a little bit, right? He 
took down that soccer on crack pressing system that he had to do in the second half more to a mid block, not really low block. He didn't bunker, but he absorbed a little bit of pressure, countered, and was just smart about it. He changed the way to play, made earlier subs that played yep. a big role too, fresher legs. And obviously with the help of Tyler Adams having a monster game throughout the game, uh, also Jack Harris and Brendan were all absolutely fantastic. He got the 3-0 lead, 3-0 win. I do like the fact that Jesse showed that he learned from the first game, the second game of the season, because that was something we were concerned about, especially after his press conference, right? It seemed like he was like, I'll see later if I learned or not. Clearly, yeah. it looked like he did. It looked yeah, like he did. did. I mean, uh, for me, what he said in the press conference was he said, maybe I, I was a little slow with the subs and I'll have a look at that. He's not going to necessarily come out and say I was wrong. But again, what they say to the press, I don't care as much as I care about what they do on the field. And that ability to learn quickly is something we've been asking for from our own national team coach, right? Learn from your mistakes, adjust quickly game to game. And sometimes that has been a little slow, but we'll get to that later. This is making Jesse better as a coach, right? He's already a very good coach. And, but the big concern we had was exactly that. Can he adjust? Is he going to be a tactical ideologue? Is he going to stick stubbornly to his way of doing things? Is he going to learn to manage games in such a way where when you have a lead, you set up in such a way to protect that lead? And he did. And it's just really encouraging to see. And they have as many points as Manchester City. You know, I mean, it's, look, three games into the season, but Leeds still just has to avoid relegation. So the sooner they get to those 40 points, the better, you know? And to take yeah. points off, three points off Chelsea is is huge. That is something important to point out, too. It's a small data sample so far, but it's very encouraging, the beginning, right? We could be we could have been doing an episode today talking about Leeds having two points or one point in three games and being worried about relegation. Well, four points. No, no, what the I, first game. No, no, no. What I'm what I'm what I meant is they could have been worse in those games, too. Oh, we I see. Have, yeah, yeah. We could have been talking today after three rounds and them having one point or two points, yeah. but they have seven. And they're they're not just the points, they've been playing well. Yeah. They could have had nine. They could have had nine points right now. So it does seem like the players have all bought into Jesse's style, right? You see it in the celebrations. Everyone's mm -hmm. hugging him. They do seem to really want to play for him because that's the biggest issue. When you go to a new club, especially a club that had a legendary coach like Bielsa there, and then you want to imprint your own way of doing things, especially as an American, there are questions of, are these players going to buy into what you're selling? Because if they don't buy in, your system doesn't matter. It's not going to work. And it does seem like they've all really bought in and he's brought in players who bring that too. I also want to mention one thing that I noticed many times with Jesse, but this game, it got, cause it got me pumped when I was watching the game. Yeah. I was, it was like Jesse Marsh on the bench in this game. And this goes completely out of tactics, level of play, anything, because this is something you can't measure. Right. And it's the passion and fire that he brings off the bench just it's it's something you can't really measure and if it caught to me watching it i can't i can't imagine how it does to the players and clearly it does affect the players they're yeah. wired they're on fire in the game and yeah. jesse has to play a role in that and that's part of the game too because soccer is a mind game and jesse yeah. seems to be very good at that part of the game as well but again uh last season was a little shaky this season's looking good Still not enough data to draw many conclusions, but we do have enough data to draw one conclusion, Pete. What's that? Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams. Uh, it's always been this enigma because people keep saying what he's good at and what he's bad at. And we talk about how he's bad on the ball. But the more I watch him with leads now, 
I noticed that he is bad on the ball when put in certain situations to be bad in the ball for his skill set, right? And I noticed that Jesse Marsh understands that and he knows how to play tighter. Greg Berhalter, on the other hand, he puts Tyler Adams in uncomfortable situations that it's not at his best. Do we want to go through that? Yeah, let's talk about it. So Tyler, usually for the national team, he plays as a regista, which is essentially a deep line playmaker. And for anyone that doesn't know what that is, it's more or less what Andrea Pirlo played when he played as a six. It's that yeah. playmaker that is on the slow build up. The build up, he's slow. He distributes the game more technical. And you hold the ball for a little bit longer, usually when you're a regista. Somewhat what Greg wanted out of Jackson Yule, I would say, probably. <laughs> so, And then yeah. he wanted that out of Tyler. And Tyler's not good at that. If he holds the ball for too long, the slow buildup, put him under pressure, distribution, that's not his strength. With Leeds, he plays a double pivot, and Rocca is the more technical player. And Tyler's responsible for doing quick releases. Get the ball, quickly get rid of it. Quickly, connect, connect. And try to get it forward. If you notice, when he won the ball, it was always forward. It was always Mm -hmm. play a through ball. Try to get it to the the furthest guy forward Mm -hmm. if you can. If not, how quickly can I play it forward to whoever's available? And that's exactly what Tyler Adams did. Just to build off of that, Greg's position is very, it's about a methodical buildup, right? Keep the ball, build it out of the back, bring it to the six, create overloads in different parts of the field, and then try to go from there. It's like a possession-based system. Essentially what Guardiola does, just without Guardiola's players, or trying to do what Guardiola does. But same haircut. Same haircut, yeah. Same, you know, body shape. But Tyler Adams was born and bred in the pressing, in the Red Bull system, right? He went from Red Bull New York to Red Bull Leipzig. So he is perfectly suited to play the way that Jesse wants to play, which is why Red Bull leads. What? Now he's at Red Bull leads. Now he's at Red Bull leads, right? Uh, Aronson is there. Christensen is there. Marsh is there. Adams is there. There's a lot of Red Bulls players. But that's exactly what he's good at. And again, it comes back to what Leeds did in the transfer market this season. They brought in players that could play the way Jesse wanted to play. You know, Brendan Aronson, another classic example. And... I mean, Calvin Phillips, I'm not so sure Calvin Phillips would play this way under Jesse Marsh. So I actually think, I'm not saying Tyler Adams is better than Calvin Phillips. I'd say he's more suited to the way Jesse Marsh wants to play, though. And it's very encouraging in in some ways because you can see what Tyler Adams can do. But it's also a little disheartening to know he probably won't get to do that for the national team. And he's probably going to have to keep doing this regista role under Greg Berhalter. Yeah, I did notice one thing that Greg Berhalter adjusted. I think it was in June. It's still not perfect and not really what we want to see. But he did have Musa dropping deep a few times to help out with the buildup. But still, that situation is not the ideal one for Tyler Adams. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying also that we need to build a national team around Tyler Adams. But it is the coach's job to find, especially in the national team, to find ways to get the best out of their players based on how they perform well for their clubs. That's how Italy won the Euros, by the way. Right. Uh, Mancini was able to put the players in similar roles that they play for their club. It meshed in. And in these tournaments uh, in the national team, they don't have much time to train. When you do that, the team sometimes clicks faster, and that's how you catch fire and you win a tournament that's so short. I'm not saying we're going to win the World Cup by doing that. That's not what's going to happen. But I'm just saying that's what Italy did with Mancini. And that's how you get the best out of your poll. But it seems like Greg Berhalter, when he has a system, even if it's not working with some players, which it doesn't work with many of our players, by the way, yeah. many of our best players, he continues to use it. It's just like yeah. it's it has to work. He'll keep doing it. It has to work this way. 
And I'll even argue that even Weston McKinney is not used to the best of his ability with the national team. Another no, player. I mean, Greg is very stuck on his 4-3-3. He's very stuck on his methodical, patient buildup. But if you look at our best games, they actually came from pressing. Our best games, like when we beat Mexico, for example, mm-hmm. at home, that was one of our best games that we played ever against Mexico because the Gold Cup and the Nations League were very close, right? It could have gone either way, to be honest. But in the, in the World Cup qualifier at home, that was probably our best performance against Mexico. And most of that came from pressing high up the field, which Greg does do. It's not like he doesn't press. Um, but in possession, he likes the slow, methodical buildup. And then when you lose it, go press. My, I contend, people say, oh, you can't build around Tyler Adams. You can't build around. Well, what you should do, in my opinion, with a national team is ask yourself, who are my five or six best players? The teams that we're, we're building around these guys, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Gio Reyna, right? Guys like that are who you build around. So your system should always be based on what suits the best five or six players that I have. And then the pieces that I put around them suit them. It suits the way I want to play. Right now, it feels like we're playing Greg's system and everyone's trying to adapt to it. And it's felt like that his entire his entire tenure, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not saying he, it can't be successful at the World Cup, and we I hope we will be. It just, again, reminds me of what this team could be, you know? Yeah, I, I hope it works in the World Cup. For all I care, once the World Cup starts, Greg can play whatever the freaking formation he wants. As long as he gets the wins... We're with him. <laughs> we yeah. don't care what he plays, who he plays. As long as we get the wins, obviously we'll try to talk about what we think he got right, got wrong. But if he gets the three points each game and gets the wins in the knockout rounds, who gives a crap at that point? Because the World yeah. Cup is the final prize. We talk about the importance of putting performances in the Gold Cup, World Cup qualifying, showing improvements, because the World Cup is the final prize, the last thing you want. In the World Cup, all that matters is results. Yeah, really. But now I need to give a special thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is DraftKings Sportsbooks. And college football is back, or American football, and it's time to enjoy the tradition, the fun, and the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbooks. To celebrate the best time of the year, again, I don't know why this is on the script, man. It's not the best time of the year. The best time of the year is the World Cup. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any team and get $200 in free bets instantly win or lose download DraftKings Sportsbook app now use the promo code TBPN that is TBPN and bet just five dollars on college football to get two hundred dollars in free bets instantly thank you once again DraftKings for sponsoring this podcast and once again the code is TBPN thank you DraftKings and Pete you do have a review for us Yep, we have a Apple Podcast review. Thanks to everybody who has given us re- uh, reviews and ratings. Um, the this is a review from Super Plastic Ghost, who says, "Love y'all both. Great takes, breakdowns, and opinions. Exactly what I need." And I think listening to y'all has developed my passion for soccer even more. That's what it's about, right? It's just growing the passion, growing the the fan base, the soccer community here in the United States. So that is the highest compliment you can p- pay us. If you've become more passionate by being a part of this community, then that's a win. And that's honestly what we do it for. Yeah. And then I mean that read... and Rocco's checks. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Rocco's checks are probably one of the most important parts here. I mean, even though none of them have arrived yet, <laughs> not a single check has arrived. <laughs> no, I did get a check this week that I was happy. I got a ref- uh, a small refund of my knee surgery. So I got oh, that dope. check. 
yeah, for yeah, everybody yeah. who's new, who maybe only listens to our podcast or whatever, this is a running joke because somebody once accused us of being paid by Rocco to talk about soccer. Um, yeah, Rocco Comiso is a billionaire owner of a few soccer clubs. He owns Fiorentina in Italy. He owns the New York Cosmos. Yeah, and he's very pro relegation guy. And then um, one MLS show accused us of this conspiracy theory and. <laughs> I mean, you guys can do your own investigation, but I'm I hoping think... people keep talking about it because then maybe Rocco will eventually notice us and pay us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could that could be something. But Rocco, if you're listening to this podcast, we're open to offers, man. Yes, I will send my bank details. <laughs> and, and trust me, we're cheap. <laughs> we're very cheap. Uh, okay. Um, but but last but not least, and this is a topic that Rocco will probably probably love, the one we're yeah. about to talk about. And again, it's not hating MLS. We just want to talk about a few things because we did see some crazy comments over the weekend on Twitter mostly and by some members of the media too and some anonymous accounts, random accounts, talking about after all this hype of the good performance coming from Jack Harrison, Brandon Aronson, Tyler Adams, players that have been a part of MLS and some of them were developed in MLS, Miguel Amiron that played for Atlanta United for a bit, and we saw some crazy. The first, do you want to go through the crazy takes, Pete, or do you have any? I only saw a few, to be honest. Yeah, one of the crazy ones I saw was they were saying, "See, MLS is capable of producing world class talents." Um, and I think we are at one point, but I don't think any of these players that we mentioned are world class. Brendan, Tyler, Miguel Miron, Jack Harris, none of them will ever be world-class in my opinion. I know this may sound harsh, but I just don't see the potential there. MLS has produced one world-class talent up to date that I can remember of, and he's Canadian and he plays for Bayern Munich. Uh, that's the one I know. It's Alfonso Davies. Besides that, we've yet to prove we can consistently produce maybe one world-class player every two years. Not even Would that. Would you describe Tim Howard as a world-class goalkeeper? <sighs> Elite. I'd say yeah, elite. close, 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 elite. but not quite world class. Like Everton yeah. level, right? Is you know good elite team, elite. not a world class player, but very close. Yeah, he's probably the he was world class in the 2014 World Cup, but that's right. a short period of time. Well, he was good at other times too, but he in that World Cup he was world class, but not consistently world class. Consistently elite. Um, Pulisic consistently, well, not consistently now, but an elite player, right? Yeah. Weston McKinney, elite. Giovanni Reina, potential world-class player, but obviously not, not there yet. Not produced by MLS, though. Uh, not produced by MLS. Well, he played. He was in New York's academy for yeah. a few years, so they yeah. did have a hand in him. But I think, you know, there are special cases, right? When we talk about the ability to translate form in MLS to the same form in a top five league, which is kind of the narrative that's being pushed. Look, all these MLS guys are scoring in Europe Therefore, MLS is as good as a top five league. That's one of the takes I saw. And I was like, stop right now. Because A, no matter how well they're playing, it's still very few players, let's be honest. It's not like all of MLS could just transition. And B, a lot of them went... They, MLS is a good stepping stone for your development as a young player, right? For most players, spending a year or two the way that Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams did in MLS to play against you know pros at a very young age, that's what MLS is good for. But that form doesn't immediately translate or very rarely, let's say, translates to a top five league right away. There's a stepping stone that you have to take to now go to 
you know, like Brendan went to Salzburg. Uh, Jack Harrison went to Middlesbrough and played in the championship for a bit and then played with Leeds in the championship before they got promoted. So there are steps that can help you to continue to develop and then maybe one day be a competitor in a top five league. But a competitor means somebody who can play well in some games. Look at Miguel Almiron. Miguel Almiron had one goal last season, right? I think his best ever season in Newcastle. And he was, was probably goals. the best player in MLS when he. Left. Yeah, he won. I think in his second year in MLS, he he won Player of the Year. So there's a, still a very big gap, guys. It doesn't mean that it, it's a good for MLS, right? That these MLS guys are in Europe scoring. Tati Castellanos got a goal for Hirona. Uh, this he's also probably one of the best players in MLS this season he was so far. Probably the best center forward last season for sure. And maybe the best center forward in MLS in quite a few years, to be honest. Yeah, I think a good thing to put out here, first of all, is they were taking credit for developing Miguel Amiron. Let's go through Miguel Amiron. First, he was developed in Cerro Porteño, right, in Paraguay, on the youth years. And then he played, if I'm not mistaken, in Argentina. I can't remember where. I think he played for Lanús. I could be mistaken on that. And then he played two seasons in MLS. And then he's been in, in the Premier League for three seasons. Three years, yeah. He left yeah, after so, Atlanta won in 18. So Yeah, so what he's doing right now is because of years of development also in the Premier League. He improved as a player. If he comes back to MLS now, he's going to kill it. It's going to be something crazy. Cucho Hernandez also in MLS right now is killing in MLS. He struggled in the top five leagues. I understand that he was productive per minutes, but he wasn't getting many minutes in the top five leagues. And it wasn't just for one club. He played for different clubs in different leagues. La Liga, Premier League. So what we're trying to say here is MLS is better than it's ever been. We're happy for that. USL is better than it's ever been. Uh, but saying that the transition from MLS to a top five league is not too big of a jump for most American, for most players in MLS is, is just nonsense. And there's no evidence that it's anywhere near. I saw some takes saying that uh, there's no way to know the gap because the clubs don't play each other. But I mean, there are ways to know the gap. <laughs> Based on that, yeah, I, I even replied to the guys saying, based off that, we're never going to know if MLS is better than the San Marino League because they don't play each other. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think what they don't realize is sometimes you need to follow players from other countries too. And players from South America, from Ecuador, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, when they go from those leagues, which the Brazilian League for sure is better than MLS, Argentina is falling quite a bit, debatable, whatever, but... Okay, let's get the Brazilian league, for example. The Brazilian players that go to top five leagues, they struggle when they jump, make that jump. They don't get there, and they're already lights out. Neymar struggled with Barcelona for a full season, pretty much. Casemiro yeah. was loaned by Real Madrid to Porto yeah, and played for Real Madrid B. Vinicius Jr. struggled for three years. Yeah. And, and Okay, Vinicius is a different thing, but Neymar, when he moved to Barcelona... He was the best player in South America, won the Libertadores, was dominant. So he stayed three years in Brazil, developed, went to a top five league and struggled playing with great players next to him. And he was having a hard time. So if it's a big jump for these guys, and we're talking about a player like Neymar, for example, that if he was American, he would have been the best American player of all time. Why is it that some MLS accounts are thinking that all of a sudden MLS is competing with these leagues? It's not the case. MLS is growing probably the fastest rate in the world in terms of leagues it's probably the fastest growing league but i think one thing we want to talk about is how it's better for mls players to do more of the brendan aronson move go to a salzburg holland maybe belgium kind of like how it seems like jordi mihailovic right now right it looks like he's yeah. going to AZ alkmaar yeah yeah 
rather than just making a jump right to the top five league and, and just becoming another player that doesn't get minutes, doesn't develop properly, right? Tyler Adams, even, he went to Leipzig. Uh, he didn't ever really break out for Leipzig. The reason I think they kept him for so long is because he knows that system so well that he was always a useful player to them. But he, it looked like he just stagnated at one point. And then now he's playing for Leeds after he developed quite a bit. And you see he's looking like a better player, more confident. So they have to be a bit smart about their decisions. And yes, the jump from MLS to a top five league is still a very rough jump. The gap is quite big. Yeah, it is. And it's okay for it to be like, there's, it's the top five leagues in the world. MLS is only 27, 28 years old. Like, I think there's a fundamental insecurity with some people that, for example, if I put a tweet out criticizing an MLS player, I get a lot of, a lot of people, ah, it's unfair. Oh, you just hate MLS. If I criticize a player who's playing in Europe, I get almost no hate. So I think there's an insecurity that people think if you criticize the league, it's because you're a Euro snob or you don't like it or you just hate the league. I'm very happy that MLS is developing players and sending them. For me, that's one of the reasons I watch MLS is for the young Americans who are being developed here. Not all of them will end up being a success in Europe, and that's okay. But if you keep sending players and they make the right moves, eventually you will have 50 guys, you know, playing in Europe's top five leagues. And that's good for the national team. And that's good for MLS because now you're telling academy kids, sign with our club, develop with us, and then we'll sell you on. And that's what MLS is good at right now, being a developmental league. It's insecure to go, oh, no, it's up there with the top five leagues. Just because there's a, there's a thing of, oh, it's ours. So we get very protective of it. The same way that a parent gets very like blinded by their love for their child, right? You, Are you talking soccer. about Mark Polisic? <laughs> for example, <laughs> or anybody like you coach soccer, you see these parents who think their child's the best player on the field. And it's like, they're the worst. What are you talking about? You know, when you love something, you're blinded by it a little bit. And so because MLS is our league and because we're a little bit insecure sometimes about our soccer history and culture and achievements, any criticism that's leveled at MLS is considered bad. But for me, criticism of MLS is the signs of a growing league that's becoming more popular than ever because criticizing it, A, makes it better because you have more pushback against things. It's not just a fanboy league where you pull out the pom-poms and go, yay, you can love MLS. You can go to MLS games. You can do vlogs about MLS and still be honest about the areas where it needs to improve. And I think it's great that MLS is a development league. I love that they're not everybody, but a lot of teams now are developing players, giving chances to young players. And so long as we keep doing that, the national team will get better. American soccer will get better. Brandon Aronson doing well at Leeds is a success story for the Philadelphia Union. Tyler Adams' success at Leeds is a success story for the Red Bulls. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a good thing. It doesn't, but like, for example, when you have Alexi Lala saying Darlington Nagby could play for any team in the world, it's like, what are you talking about? You're just being dishonest about the league and that doesn't do it any services, right? It doesn't do any service to a player of his level. It's no, just... I want to add to what you said there for Alexi, and not just Alexi, many other accounts that make these nonsense um, MLS takes sometimes, like talking about how they're producing world-class players, which is still not true. We're getting there. We're getting there. There will be world-class players coming out of MLS eventually, besides Alfonso Davies. Uh, but what happens with these takes is when you have a guy that watches a lot of soccer for years in Europe, South America, Mexico, when he sees these takes, you turn him off from the league. He stops yeah. taking the league seriously. If he because he people end up seeing it. I have friends here that watch a lot of Euro leagues and watch the U.S. men's national team and don't watch MLS. A lot of friends, 
and they see these Alexi takes because they go viral. And when they see that, some of them are like, who the flippity fluck is Darlington Nagby? Yeah. And then they, they're like, oh, that guy that played for the national team when we missed the World Cup? You're telling me that guy can play for any team in the world? So they stopped taking it seriously. They're like, I'm not watching this crap. And they, talk, it, they stopped taking MLS pundits seriously too because they know they're either just saying things to get attention or they're being dishonest and disingenuous about they the level think of our clueless. Or they think they're clueless. Uh, right. Anyway, it doesn't it doesn't help. I think knowing where the league stands is very important. That's that's one thing where the league stands. And like we said, it's a great league to develop. It, it's it's already an improvement because uh, not so long ago is a retirement league. Now it's a development league. Yeah, I'd say in the last five years, I've seen more improvement in the quality of MLS than I've seen in a long time. And a lot of that yeah. is that the increased spending, right? The adding of TAM. You know, the under 22, the young DP rule. Mm -hmm. Now you have the under 22 rule. So it's improved a lot. Let's just talk about one thing. Let, maybe we can say one thing each that MLS can do to get better. For me, spending money on defenders. For me, the biggest weakness of the league is still the defending, right? When you talk about quality on the field. If MLS teams could start spending more money on defenders, for example, Walker Zimmerman, he's not an elite defender by any means. But to, to keep a guy like that in the league or to bring a Matt Miazga back to the league is good for the league because it will improve the quality of defending. And when you improve the quality of defending, you have a more balanced league. Right now, MLS spends heavily on DPs, which are usually strikers, wingers, or attacking midfielders. And so it creates this imbalance, right? Basically, it's top heavy where you can score amazing goals in MLS through some terrible defending. And it's great. I, that's, that's fun to watch. But it's also it, it, then those attackers, for example, when we look at strikers who go to a top five league, how many strikers that we talked about this last time, I think Clint Dempsey might be the only striker who went to a top five league and produced consistently nowhere near still not the level. I think his best season was very good after six years in the Premier League, his first year, six goals, right? Tati Castellanos, probably the best striker in MLS in five years, if you ask me. I hope he does well at Hirona. I put him maybe at 10 goals this season, right? Ricardo Pepe is, is discovering that scoring goals in MLS doesn't translate directly to a top five league. Even Holland, Erling Holland knew he had to go from Molde to Salzburg to Dortmund and then to Manchester City to gradually increase his level. Because the, when the level of the jump is not so high, you get to use, you know, you can adapt to the speed of play in a, in a higher level league and still be okay with the quality. You can compete at that level and then you move up and then you move up. And I think. That's the way, especially for American attackers to go, um, because I really think it's tough. It is very tough to score goals in a top five league. It just is. Yeah, to me, all of that obviously increase in spending and quality will bring more people to watch. But to me, one thing they could do to improve right away would be preseason regional tournaments uh, like a Southeast tournament, a Florida tournament between the teams to develop some rivalries and get more attention. So, for example, they could have a Southeast with Atlanta United, Tampa Bay Rowdies, Miami FC, Inter-Miami, uh, Orlando City. Uh, that, I think, would matter, not in terms of improving the quality overall, but to start building a soccer culture within this country, right? Build some rivalries, have some games that matter. And I understand some people are going to say it's just preseason. Trust me, over time, because there are neighbor cities and cities close and the fans will show up and USL want to beat MLS and vice versa, it'll matter. It takes a time. But I think it's building the soccer culture, which I think MLS has failed to build a soccer culture in the country. There it is a soccer worked. culture, but it's very small. Like the it's MLS. 
the MLS it, fans are the minority, right? In it, terms it, of soccer the, fans in the US. There's more soccer fans outside of this MLS culture uh, than the MLS culture itself. You got to bring these other ones in. And these other ones in to care. They need to be within rivalries, games that matter. And I think that also MLS could improve their schedule a little bit, the way it's made. And I think that'll change with Apple. Apple will definitely change that. So I don't want to cite that because I want to see how it's going to look under Apple on Apple TV+. Plus. But the schedule is also kind of crappy. I do think that one thing they can do is that some regional tournaments would make a big difference. And they're not going to do this because they're not going to want to get involved with USL. That would help promote USL. But I think having games against USL teams can build some rivalries to make all the fans care. Yeah. Right? Uh, build a culture. Rivalries in soccer histories because that's what people care about. Yeah. Right. That's what they want to care about. Along with quality, they want that. But even if the quality is not there, if there's a soccer history rivalry, people will care because leagues in South America, they have less quality than MLS. A lot of them. Yeah. It doesn't matter. The fans still watch. There's history. There's culture. That's why. But Pete, shall we end it here? Yep. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Please drop a review if it's a five star review. And I'll let Pete close this episode because I'm very tired from the sun today, Pete. As always, guys, thanks for watching or listening. Rather, this is not YouTube. This is a podcast. Uh, we appreciate it. If you'd like to get more um, you know, content, come to 11 Yanks, uh, the channel, or Tactical Manager TV. We have two, three, four videos a week, live watch-alongs for games, and just a really fun community. You know, Somebody commented on my Leeds-Chelsea stream afterwards that they didn't have a lot of friends to watch soccer with. So being part of the live streams helped them to be a part of a soccer community. And it felt like watching soccer with their friends. And I thought that's beautiful, you know, because I'm the same way. Not a lot of people in my friend's circle are soccer fans, at least not here in L.A. So I don't really get to watch with anybody. So it's kind of fun for me, too. And it's to be part of a community that can love the same thing together and go through the highs and lows of this beautiful game. So come check us out. Um, as always, like Filippo said, give us a review if you enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.